Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. In my lifetime, I can think of only one real free market healthcare reform, which was the advent of health savings accounts. As great as those are, they continue to operate with one hand tied behind their back in so many ways. The Affordable Care Act failed to improve health care outcomes, but conservative voices failed to win over any takers for a counterproposal when they had a proposal to offer. Many people are either frustrated by the healthcare ecosystem and overwhelmed by its complexity, or they are largely oblivious to it, allowing the status quo to continue. So what, if anything, will give us a more free, transparent, and outcome-driven healthcare apparatus in America? Our system is meant to be a free market system, but is it? What is the role of doctors in all of this? Can things really change? Well, today we're going to explore these ideas and ask the question of how can we ever really get to a free market healthcare system? My guests today are from two new think tanks, the Paragon Institute and Cicero Institute, as well as the unique Benjamin Rush Institute, which works to connect liberty-minded med school students. I hope in talking with them, we can find some new ideas, some new ways of speaking about these issues, and perhaps some hope that we can get to a better spot in our nation's healthcare. Let's find out. Our first guest today is well-versed in the ins and outs of healthcare policy from both inside and outside the policy-making gates. Brian Blaze founded Paragon Health Institute in 2021 with the aim of improving healthcare and lowering prices by empowering patients, expanding competition in the market, and increasing innovation, which we always love. So, uh, but Brian, you had a really unique seat in the healthcare policy discussions because you were on President Trump's National Economic Council from 2017 to 2019. What did you learn from uh, from being inside the walls there, as it were, about attempting to advance free market? policy. Thanks for having me on, Peter. It was the honor of my life to serve in the White House for the first two and a half years of the Trump administration. My issue was front and center right away. Uh, We were working with Congress to try to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare. It became pretty clear to me uh, that the party was not unified on what what direction that would take um, and that we had not done a lot of the work that really needed to be done in advance to prep members of Congress uh, and to uh, prep the public uh, for what that reform was going to look like. So in, in part, I learned that the Republican Party uh, and those of us who support free markets and limited government, we need to spend a lot more time developing health policy solutions. Uh, and you know, a lot of conservatives and libertarians that go into public policy, they go into energy deregulation, you know, they want to reform the tax code. And healthcare is super important and an area where if you care about the fiscal future of the country, right, the health entitlement programs are what are driving our deficits and debt to record level, as well as, you know, just relatively poor outcomes with these programs. Um, I learned uh, uh, that the executive branch has enormous 
power. And it really has become much more powerful than the legislative branch uh, over the past few decades. Generally, I think that's a bad thing, uh, but it is just a fact right now of political life that the executive branch has amassed enormous power, in part because Congress has delegated a lot of key decisions and authorities to the executive branch. So being able to work within the bureaucracy um, and uh, advance uh, policy reforms is really important. Uh, we were able to accomplish some uh, market-based reforms on health care in the Trump administration. We expanded options for workers and small businesses. Uh, we enacted price transparency rules so that people know prices in advance of receiving care. We were able to make some uh, pretty significant reforms to the Medicare uh, program. But fundamentally, uh, you know, there's a lot of work left to be done on health reform. Uh, Republicans, free market uh, advocates are going to be in charge of government again uh, at some point, And we really need to have a better, uh, well-thought-out uh, platform for what reforms we're going to advance. Yeah, and so knowing that there will be another bite at that apple and the overdue window is going to shift again, you came out of the administration and started Paragon. So tell us about the mission there. Paragon's focus is, I'd say, twofold. One, really evaluating how government programs are working. I think a lot of times uh, the media, the public, uh, focus on the intentions behind government programs and don't really look at uh, how they work, the, uh, the way that they change individuals' incentives. Uh, so we want to evaluate how government programs are actually working. And the second thing we want to do is develop a set of reforms uh, that are really based on uh, putting the patient in charge, maximizing their choices, uh, ensuring that there's robust competition in the market, and really creating a regulatory climate that is conducive to innovation. There's a great quote from uh, Harvard business professor Regina Herzlinger, that choice supports competition, competition fuels innovation, and innovation is the only way to make things better and cheaper. That really motivates a lot of my work. Like what can we do in healthcare to reduce government regulation um, and sort of bad policies to expand consumer choice, promote market competition, and make sure that we're allowing innovators and entrepreneurs uh, to deliver healthcare more efficiently and more effectively to American patients. I think that makes a lot of sense to try to assess where we are, right? I mean, as a, as a main pillar to actually get a reality-based view of the, the landscape. I mean, I've, for example, I've heard you say before how we spend so much on healthcare every year as individuals, as a government, as a society, but America should be getting healthier and yet they're not. So maybe that's a good place to start. Like, are there lessons we can take away from that, from your research that, and, and some solutions that you can apply? Yeah. I mean, let's just think, uh, this is not uh, too much in the past, but just think about the Affordable Care Act. So the emphasis of the Affordable Care Act was expanding health insurance coverage. Now, largely that occurred through a significant expansion of the Medicaid program. Uh, that happened in 2014. Well, what do we know um, population health uh, outcomes from 2014. We actually know that before the pandemic in 2019, American life expectancy was lower than it was in 2013. Um, so we had a huge expansion of health insurance coverage, huge expansion of government uh, spending on health care, and American life expectancy declined. Right? We know that there were sort of bad, bad, bad things during that period, like um, uh, the opioid epidemic, 
Uh, we know that over the past uh, decade or two, uh, rising obesity levels has been a real problem. And one of the conditions that exacerbated people's uh, negative uh, health effects from the pandemic was if they were obese, if they had chronic health conditions, um, that there's ultimately a lot more that affects our health and well-being outside of medical care. And we have so much focused on medical care, subsidizing and regulating uh, medical care and not paying enough attention to things um, that actually matter for health. And a lot of government policies actually worsen uh, sort of things that actually matter for health and well-being, like uh, social connection, like good diet, uh, good exercise, uh, family togetherness, um, things that really do matter for our health and, and well-being, but are sort of outside of traditional health policy. Well, and it seems so much of this comes back to incentives, right? I mean, you've got providers, you've got the government, you've got consumers like you and me and everyone listening here who consume health, if you will. So does your work, does some of the research that you're doing, uh, does it begin to do some work to align those incentives and the different stakeholders so that we can actually start to lower costs and see increased output or outcomes? Yeah. You know, Peter, it's all about incentives. So I used to teach out an economics textbook that the first two words of that textbook were incentives matter. And then the next sentence was, and the rest is just commentary. So you have to look at how policy affects individuals' incentives. Um, what do we know is a defining feature of American healthcare? It's that people are not spending their own money directly on the care that they receive. Um, the vast majority of spending goes through third-party payers, it goes through government, it goes through bureaucracies, insurance companies, and employers, that people just don't have control over the spending. Um, and then they don't have uh, incentives to be cost-conscious consumers. Uh, a lot of health insurance is really the prepayment of medical care. It's not you know, the uh, protection against major financial risk. So I think we have to look at um, uh, incentives and we have to look at the uh, policies that allow people more control over their uh, expenditures that help them to be good consumers, both buying health coverage as well as buying health care. So efforts around price transparency, I think are important along those dimensions. And what we can do to remove a lot of the unnecessary regulation and bureaucracy that's in between uh, the patient and the medical provider. Like we don't want the medical provider to be focused on maximizing their income against a whole bunch of uh, reimbursement methodologies creating by the government, right? The government is not well positioned to determine value. And they, in healthcare, you know, we have a big bureaucracy that decides what's reimbursed through the Medicare program and how much the prices through the Medicare program are going to be. When you have big bureaucracies with that much power, you're allocating resources through lobbying and which special interest groups have the power to block competition rather than sort of allowing market-based mechanism, um, prices, consumer choice to determine how to allocate resources. So what can we do to better align incentives so that uh, patients have more control over the money, the information that they need, and that doctors are actually serving patients rather than government bureaucracies? But anytime you talk about change, of course, you get uh, awful messaging. I mean, we're, we're recording this right as the uh, election cycle wraps up. Democrat candidates have been trying to pummel GOP candidates with this. They're going to take away your Medicare message as, as one of the things in their arsenal. 
but that's not unique to this year. I mean, anytime change gets talked about, these scare messages pop up. So kind of as we wrap up here, is there a way to talk about the need for change to some of these healthcare entitlements without just flat out losing on the issue? I think so. I mean, um, we need to focus uh, on the fact that we want a patient-centered uh, healthcare system. And like what I said on that the bureaucracy has, has too much power, you are right that whenever there are changes proposed, you get a lot of opposition to those changes. Many times that opposition is driven by industry um, that uh, is benefiting from the way that the status quo is set up and doesn't want to subject healthcare to sort of the creative destruction that you have through the rest of the economy. We know that that's the that creative destruction is what leads to you know better, more efficient products over time. In part, it's going to take leadership, though, Peter. Like, there's got to be um, a leadership that lays out the real problem with these programs, both in terms of the budget trajectory that they're on and in terms of the poor outcomes uh, that many enrollees on these programs receive. I mean, if you look at the U.S. fiscal position uh, and we're like serious about engaging in uh, policy reform, the deficits are unsustainable. Um, And if we don't make changes to our spending and our spending problems are driven by our entitlement programs, Our standard of living in this country is going to be lower over time, and we're going to face a situation where the next generation, for the first time ever, is not as well off as the previous generation. And these reforms, I mean, they they, they will take some political uh, leadership, and ideally you want to insulate people on the program now from any fundamental changes to the program, but to restructure it so that it serves um, uh, younger Americans um, uh, and future generations better than the way that they're serving us now. That'll take courage on all sides. Well, Brian Blaze, we're glad you and Paragon are out there trying to propose some solutions and get us into a better spot. Appreciate you being here. Hey, thanks so much, Peter. Cicero Institute is one of the newest national think tanks. It's grown fast since its founding in 2019 and hones in on a few specific issues, including healthcare, homelessness, government services, regulation, and a few others. Cicero has a real focus on highlighting and developing truly innovative solutions to problems and promoting those ideas in an action-oriented way. Jonathan Wolfson is the Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director at Cicero Institute, and he joins me to talk about the Institute uh, and, more specifically, the healthcare work that it's doing. But Jonathan, before we go deep into the healthcare, any further color you want to add on my description of Cicero and its mission? Sure, Peter. Thanks for having me. So the only thing I'd add is that Cicero is actually made up of two sister organizations, our 501c3, which is Cicero Research, that develops innovative policy ideas, and then our 501c4, Cicero Action, that allow us to take those policies that we've developed and other good policies that we find and go work with legislators around the country to actually get those passed into law. Got it. That's helpful. Um, Like so many organizations, having the C3 and the C4 to balance each other out and make sure everything can get done. So, you know, Jonathan, we all want, quote unquote, better healthcare, but I've always wondered if we really understand what better means. So in your view and Cicero's view, what does a, quote unquote, better American healthcare system really look like? Well, a better healthcare system really focuses on patients, and it's empowering patients to work alongside their doctors and other medical providers to not only make good choices about the health care that they're getting or the medication that they're taking or the, the lifestyle that they're living, 
but to do so in a way that meets their needs and wants, because different people want different things out of their healthcare, and really giving the patients control is a very key part of that. Having a functioning marketplace in healthcare would get us a lot closer to that ideal and would let innovative solutions compete to provide the best care to patients who need it in the way that they prefer to have that care given to them. So one of the things that we sometimes talk about is right now, if you want to get healthcare from a hospital, you have no idea how much it's going to cost you, who may be interacting with you, and what the long-term outcomes from that care may be, unlike almost anything else, including really complicated things that we buy in the marketplace. But a more innovative system that would empower patients would give patients information about how much it's going to cost them. They would know the doctor. They'd have better information about what the care they're getting, what their options are going into that care, what their options are for paying for that care, and whether that really is the best possible treatment they could get given all of their unique healthcare characteristics, as well as their stage in life and just what their needs are at the time. So I'm with you. I think all that's great. So here's an easy question. So why have these free market ideas really failed to generate anything other than lip service, if they can even get that, from lawmakers over the past 20, 30 years? Well, Peter, that's a great question. And, you know, as much as we would love to think that it's simple, part of the problem is that conservatives and free market individuals have allowed themselves to be painted into a corner where they have to defend everything that's going on in the status quo as if it is a free market in healthcare. A lot of people claim that just because we don't have a national health service or some sort of single payer healthcare system, what goes on in our healthcare system is in fact the free market. But that's just not true. The reality is we shouldn't be forced to defend every government intervention, every anti-competitive action by a hospital or insurer, every regulatory market distortion as if that's part of the free market. Those are all things that have been distortions that have been imposed on the market, sometimes by government, sometimes by private actors acting in a non-free market way. But none of those things really are free market healthcare. And I think that folks who believe that we really should empower patients with free market principles in our healthcare system need to always push back against the notion that we are living in a free market system right now. For example, if we look at what we've got with Obamacare, when they put that in place, the whole proposal was to increase the number of people who got Medicaid, which is not private insurance, but is actually a lot more people going on the, the government roles of insurance. Back when I started working on healthcare in the Bush administration in the early 2000s, I remember everybody talking about how bad Medicaid was for every patient and how it was a despicable thing that we had so many people on Medicaid. Fast forward less than a decade later, and everybody's touting how great it is to increase the number of people on Medicaid. So I think that that's really where the problem is, that we have allowed that conversation to happen. So at Cicero, we're focused on finding ways to move the market toward freedom and opportunity and really give patients and doctors the opportunity to interact in the marketplace and find the most innovative solutions for them. I think that's a really nice articulation and, uh, and a good framing, because you're right, the, the phrase we back ourselves into a corner, I think is right. Then just the way we talk about these things so often undermine the the very efforts that we want to get to. Now, you all are working hard to have all kinds of different solutions out there. I know right at the end of October, you all published a new paper on patients' right to save. Tell us about this, because this is really interesting. Yeah. So we are really excited about this brand new policy proposal that just came out, as you mentioned. Our Starting point was that price transparency is a great thing, but unfortunately, price transparency is only as useful 
as it is if people actually use that information and have an incentive to do it. It doesn't matter if a patient knows that their care is going to cost $10,000 or $100,000 across the street if they still choose to go to the $100,000 option because their personal cost isn't going to change and they have just a proclivity for turning right at stoplights instead of left. What we need to do is we need to find ways to help people have an incentive to look at that price information and make good choices. If there really is no quality difference between a $5,000 knee replacement and a $25,000 knee replacement, then what are ways we can encourage patients to get that $5,000 knee replacement? And so what we've come up with is three key steps in our policy reform. And the first is requiring providers to publish their cash prices, the cash price they'd be willing to accept for care for a specific procedure or a, a group of procedures that an individual needs. So for example, you'd have a doctor say, I'll do a knee replacement all in $5,000 at my facility. Secondly, we say anybody who's spending below their deductible who finds a cash price that's published that is lower than their insurance company's lowest negotiated rate can go to those doctors, whether they're in or out of network, and they are given credit toward their own deductible. The reality is people are paying for their deductible money with their own cash. It's nobody else's cash. And so if they choose to go outside the network, they shouldn't be punished for finding lower cost prices outside of their insurer network. And the third, and this really is kind of the unique feature of this proposal that we've come up with, is once you exceed your deductible, an individual who finds a lower cash price is able to go to any doctor in or out of network. But for any money that they save their insurance company by going to that lower cost cash price option, the insurance company and the patient split the cost savings. And that really does provide a massive incentive for that person who's spending $50,000, $100,000, dollars a year on healthcare. If they're able to make a significant dent in that total cost, not only will the insurance company save money that might someday get passed along to the patient, him or herself, along with as part of a premium reduction or a slower premium increase over time. But the reality is in the moment, in that same time period, the patient is going to have an, a huge incentive to go forward to pick the best option for them because it's lower cost but equal outcome. And so in that situation, if that patient finds the $5,000 knee replacement instead of a $25,000 knee replacement, then they're going to split the $20,000 cash savings with their insurer in the form of HSA contributions or direct cash payments. Ultimately, that's going to drive a lot of people who are high spenders to make to make decisions really that are driven by the incentives of using that transparent price information. And so that's really the innovation that we have come up with. Uh, you know, and the biggest benefit is going to be to those high spenders. That'll trickle over to lots of other people because they'll have these cash prices that are out there. But the people who almost never get incentivized in any policy proposal are those highest spenders because they figure at the end, at the beginning of the year, I'm going to blow through my deductible. I'm going to blow through my out-of-pocket max. So they don't care whether the procedure that they're going to is going to be expensive or inexpensive. And this provides an incentive to give them cash in their pocket that they can use to cover all the other expenses that they likely have if they have those chronic conditions. Right. High spenders in healthcare generally are not like high spenders who buy yachts, right? They're, they're not necessarily doing it because they've got this disposable cash that they don't know what to do with and want a prettier kneecap. Like they, uh, they have things that they have to do. And, and you're right, incentivizing them to do that in a more cost efficient way makes a heck of a lot of sense. It seems to me, though, that this is not a proposal that needs a government solution. You need to find a 
Blue Cross Blue Shield or a Kaiser or somebody to say, yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to implement it. Is that right? So I think if you had insurers that were interested in stepping up and doing it, that would be an amazing solution. Unfortunately, under the Affordable Care Act, the insurance companies were given what's called the medical loss ratio, which basically incentivizes insurance companies to want to have higher overall spending. Because when they have higher overall spending, they're getting to keep 15% of the total spend in profits for themselves. And so the insurance company's incentives right now are aligned where having more expensive care doesn't actually hurt them because the more expensive the care is, they're going to pass those costs on in higher premiums to the employers and to the workers in the future years. And they're going to get Mm -hmm. their 15% profit margin. So unfortunately, while this would be great if insurance companies would step in and do it, and there are, to be fair, there are some self-insured companies that are exploring these types of options. We are not seeing this type of innovation by the insurance companies, in part because their incentives are not aligned correctly either. And so unfortunately, sometimes to get back to the free market, you sometimes have to impose some sort of a mandate or some sort of requirement that tells the private business, in this case, the insurance company, here is the structure you need to put in place that eliminates these anti-competitive incentives in the status quo. Got it. Interesting. Um, all right. Well, you know, your founder, Joe Lonsdale, he's a driven guy, results-oriented guy. The other people I know who are at Cicero are in that same boat. Uh, just real quick as we wrap up here, are you optimistic? Are you all optimistic that some of these proposed changes can actually turn into reality in the healthcare arena? We're really optimistic at the Cicero Institute that there are lots of people out there who want to come up with innovative solutions and really want to push those forward. We interact with lots of legislators all the time who hear from their constituents, who are themselves patients, who are themselves doctors, who are themselves business owners, who say that healthcare costs and problems of access to physicians and access to care are only getting worse. And this is a path that cannot be sustained. And they are looking for innovative solutions that really do exist to help bring those costs down without sacrificing the quality of care, without sacrificing the doctor-patient relationship. So bring down those costs, help people have better access to their physicians. And so the suite of reforms that we're running this year, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on. And we're really excited for the upcoming legislative session because we do think that those legislators are interested in passing these innovative reforms. That's great. Well, Jonathan Wolfson, really appreciate you sharing all this great work that Cicero's doing. Thank you so much. Peter, thanks so much for having me. Many listeners will have heard of the Federalist Society, which provided the model of building student groups on campuses around particular disciplines of study. FedSoc is for lawyers, and now groups exist for a bunch of other disciplines. And medicine is no exception, where the Benjamin Rush Institute offers a way for patient-centered, free-market-minded future doctors to connect and to grow. Richard Walker is the executive director of Benjamin Rush Institute, and he joins me here to talk about the work they're doing. So, Richard, let's go back to the beginning, which I think was around 2010. What prompted the founding of Benjamin Rush Institute? Well, uh, Sally Pipes, who is the uh, was then and is now the uh, president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, uh, her mother, she lost her mother to the uh, bureaucracy and the other complexities and inefficiencies of the uh, Canadian healthcare system. So she developed the Benjamin Rush Society as a uh, project of the Pacific Research Institute. It quickly, well, real quickly, but it did take off and got to be a little bit too much to be just a project. 
So we went uh, independent in 2013, and uh, the Benjamin Rush Institute, the society was renamed the Benjamin Rush Institute, and in the, in the beginning, they relied mostly on staging debates and developing chapters on uh, medical school campuses. Uh, that funding quickly ran out, so they kind of were at a loss where to go, and they were kind of fumbling, and then they asked me to come in and see if we couldn't kind of balance things out a little bit because I had worked in the nonprofit world as a chief operating officer and chief financial officer for several years, so I did. And uh, it, took us, uh, it took us a while, two, two and a half years, to right the ship and get everything, get a good fundamental, uh, a good foundation uh, laid there as far as funding and programming, matching those two together uh, in a sustainable way. And uh, wouldn't you know, just as soon as we were about ready to hope to take liftoff and kind of become, uh, take that next uh, step, to become the size of a uh, Federalist Society, uh, uh, Adam Smith Society, so on and so forth, COVID hit. And uh, our mission is to be on these campuses, to develop these chapters, uh, and, and to basically ensure that medical students on these campuses, regardless of their political beliefs or their policy beliefs, uh, policy positions, I should say, uh, it, it just, uh, that completely shut us down. It was an existential threat. And we uh, basically went into uh, online events and reaching out to our students through social media. And I hate to say this because I would never want to go through COVID again. <laughs> and I don't think any member of the BRI staff would like to go through that because we spent a lot of sleepless nights. However, the branching out into social media that re was required of us and the online uh, work that we did, now that it's slowly easing, these restrictions on club formation and student events are slowly easing. And in fact, in some areas of the country are gone just about, uh, we are now ready to take that lift off that we were ready to do before COVID, but we're going to need support to do it. Yeah, sometimes the shock to the system can do a lot of good things, even as it disrupts everything. So, you know, as we think of healthcare policy, we're often talking about lawmakers and bureaucrats and how do we nudge them towards free market. Talk to me about what role you think doctors should be playing in the system. You obviously think that they have a role, otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. One of our guests during the COVID period was a young man, a young doctor, who runs a direct primary care practice in uh, San Antonio. It was uh, an event for the University of Texas Medical Branch School. And he basically said, and I've heard this repeated in other ways or, or intimated in other ways, healthcare has to be reformed from the medical student up. It's the medical students, the young doctors that have to affect this change. For example, two or three years ago, Peter, you, you wouldn't have heard well, it was, it was unusual but not unheard of to hear about a direct primary care physician who had completely untethered themselves from, from hospitals, had untethered themselves from insurance, so on and so forth. Yet today, it's a lot more common. In fact, we're going to send five students over to the uh, DPC Nuts and Bolts Conference sponsored by uh, uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation next week. Uh, and and the, a lot of those doctors that are coming there well, all of those doctors coming there want to learn more about direct primary care, but a lot of them are going to practice direct specialty care. So this is growing. Counterbalanced by that is a lot of hospitals and pharmaceutical companies are buying out a lot of these uh, individual practices. So 
What the doctors are doing, I think they have to do. What we are doing on the student level, we have to do. It just has to get a lot more organized, and you can almost see it kind of coming together. Some of the groups uh, you and I were talking about earlier uh, that are out there that are working, uh, even the Federalist Society, sometimes they argue about these uh, healthcare uh, policies, and we even encourage our students to uh, participate uh, I think right after I first came to BRI, we had a young lady from Ohio who's, who's now in practice, and she actually went and testified before the Ohio Senate. We paid in September. We sponsored a student to go to the, uh, what, get this, the 110th annual meeting of the Clinical Orthopedic Society of America. He's an MS1. That means he's a first-year student at medical school, and he actually presented a paper he co-authored on cartilage regeneration. So these are the kinds of things that we need to do more of. I mean, when anybody asks me, what does BRI really need? I said, we, we've got what we need in terms of strategy. What we need is the support to do it. In other words, more hands to do the work, so on and so forth. But basically the advocacy part is what they're doing. So one of the three things we do, besides the events that we hold, uh, on campus and then sponsoring these programs like uh, uh, the uh, uh, debates and the lectures and all that and expanding our chapter uh, outreach, which we're now outreaching to nurses, uh, both undergraduate and graduate programs. We're reaching out to pharmacy schools. We're reaching out to pre-med uh, programs. And in fact, we have just launched our first effort in that area in which the pre-meds, uh, the pre-med uh, quote committee, at the University of North Texas at Dallas is now being mentored by the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Some of our students, uh, the BRI students at the uh, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. That's, that's the second thing. The third thing is that, that we really are starting to make sure that they become advocates, that we offer to help them write op-eds. Uh, we obviously offer to help them do what uh, this uh, first-year medical student, Nicholas Householder, did at the Clinical Orthopedic Society is to go there and present things, to network. We also sponsored three students at the Free to Care Conference back in September. Uh, David Ballot's group there, uh, Free to Care Coalition uh, out of the uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation, and encouraged them to, to get more involved, not so much in politics as in policy. Now, the two inevitably converge, as you know, uh, to some degree, ultimately they converge. We're going to hold, we're, and we can talk about this, but we're, we've started doing position papers. We're going to release one at the Hillsdale College D, uh, DC campus, I think, in December, first week of December. And of course, uh, we're going to ask not only the chapter there at George Washington University uh, to kind of help us out, but uh, we're looking to uh, obviously promote that and our legislative director there in D.C. always reaches out when we're holding an event like that to the, uh, to the like, for example, the health care committees in Congress, so on and so forth. Now, give us a sense of the scale. I mean, both how far BRI reaches, how many chapters you have and students you're touching. But how big is that addressable market? I don't really have a scope of, of how many doctors are going through med school at any given time. And now, especially when you layer in pharmacies and nursing schools and all of these other places, you're beginning to make outreach. 
Well, you know, it's like like they tell you to always say, if you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> there, there's 200, about 200, give or take one or two, but 200, you can say 200 medical schools in the United States. How many total students that is, I don't think I have an accurate, and I tried to look it up, uh, uh, not extensively, and you get differing reports. But uh, so I, I wouldn't hazard a guess on the total number of students, but there are about 200 medical schools, a good guess. We uh, were in 43 chapters or 44 at the end of the spring semester. So we've started this uh, semester. Now, I have to tell you, these medical school students go dark over the summer. They're gone. <laughs> they don't want to hear from us. Uh, we have to promise them we won't call them, that we won't, uh, their, their personal email, we won't, we won't try to get a hold of them unless it's just really uh, necessary. But we've reestablished most of, the, most of those, if not all of them. We've added a few, Oklahoma State, University of Louisville, Indiana University, Wayne State come to mind. We've added about nine medical schools, um, three uh, nursing chapters, and then uh, four or three pre-med programs. That we know those we have those for sure. So as we come back into the spring semester and they get a little more active, we'll have a more accurate count. What our goal is, and we think it's a very realizable goal, is that we will have about 60 uh, chapters. If we only had 50, that would still mean we were in a quarter of the medical schools. Well, you uh, certainly are doing a lot of different things. I think the growth is is really admirable, and I hadn't really considered how that direct primary care doctor, that that rise of that actually is is an outcropping and, and it's a, a free market solution to some of the bureaucratic problems we face. So uh, can I, I tell you, can I tell you that and as, as an economist, I almost couldn't swallow this whole that we have to say free enterprise, not free market. Oh, well, that's important. The communications well, piece matters, right? It is. The way me- me- it. Messaging is important. Yeah. Well, Richard Walker, I appreciate you talking to Ben about the uh, Benjamin Rush Institute with us today. Thanks. You bet. There are a number of groups that have been working on this space for a long time. You heard some of them referenced. Sally Pipes and her work at the Pacific Research Institute, the doctor-focused Docs for Patient Care, the Foundation for Government Accountability has been working on the regulatory aspects of healthcare for years, and Grace Marie Turner at the Galen Institute and John Goodman of the Goodman Center are two thinkers in this space who may have been at this longer than anyone. All of them are doing important work, but I'm encouraged that there are some new names in this area, in Paragon and Cicero, both of which I feel are really focused on innovating on not just how we think of the problem, but how we implement real actionable reform. But one thing from the discussion with Richard Walker of the Benjamin Rush Institute that has really stuck with me is this idea of direct primary care doctors. I had some vague notion of what they were in the past. Maybe you did. Maybe you are better versed than I am. But to me, this idea represents what might really be needed, a way of completely blowing up the old system and trying something new. Of course, new here is what most listeners to this podcast believe anyway, a marketplace where providers offer the best deal to discerning customers with competition and a little bit of self-interest steadily allowing for new and better options, a real free market. It's a reminder that being conservative doesn't mean clinging to the past. At its best, it means looking forward to a better future without unmooring 
from the tried and true principles that brought about so much prosperity. If we can do that, perhaps we can really get to a better, brighter future for our healthcare. Well, thank you so much for listening. Are you subscribed to this podcast and your favorite podcatcher? If not, I hope you will get subscribed. I'd hate for you to miss an episode. We've got some great ones coming up. More importantly, I hope you'll consider supporting groups and causes you hear about on this show when you find one that's a good fit for your giving priorities. And as we approach the end of the year, I hope you won't forget that we at Donors Trust are here to be a partner in your charitable giving. Our team is always happy to talk to you about the simplicity, flexibility, and tax friendliness of a donor advised fund and how it might help you achieve your charitable goals. Email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org and let's find a time to talk. Thank you for being a giver. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk more soon. Thank you.